Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process. We work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive wholeness and do justice to the rich complexity of the world. We are intent on overcoming the limitations of a mechanistic view of life and, instead, learning from life itself to think in more living ways. We invite you to listen in and join us as we meet both natural phenomena and the nature of human inquiry. This episode features a presentation by the Nature Institute's co-founder, Craig Holridge. Today's topic presents surprising perspectives concerning the nature of development and evolution, based on the concrete example of frog metamorphosis and amphibian evolution. This talk was originally given via Zoom and included slides. If you want to see the images Craig refers to, just go to the podcast page of our website, natureinstitute.org. And now, on to Craig's presentation. Today, I'll be talking about development in the present, trying to understand in a particular way what a developmental process is, how we can think about that, or I could even say how I think we need to think about it. We'll build on that and then look into this question of the fossil record and how do we think about that, which is in many ways much more difficult because it's dealing with something that we're not present at as we are in developmental processes today. It seems to me that in the question of evolution, it's really important to take seriously the fact that we need to understand development today if we're going to have any chance at all to understand what we think was development in the past, what we call, and so development writ large evolution. I think part of the problems with the theories that are out there and as they've continued to develop over the last 100 and now what is it, more than 50 years since Darwin, it's often not close enough looking at development today or having a simplified impression of what development is and then using those simplified pictures to interpret the past. And I think that's something we need to be very awake to. I've been studying evolution and taught evolution for a long time to high school students and have written about it and thought about it. And it's always been a big issue and something I never feel like I've really understood. But a few years ago, I did have something that I felt to be a breakthrough, was a breakthrough for me. And then I tried to bring that into words in this little booklet on the frog. And so that's what I'd like to deal with today. And basically, I think one could look at any developmental process in the present and discover something similar. But I happen to have discovered it with the frog. So that's what I'm going to lead you through. Hopefully, I can make clear some of my aha moments so that's where we are. I'll just dive in with the frog. I'll show you some slides. But before we do that, just to try to get into the mood of the frog, you have to think of a pond in the springtime. And I'm 
speaking here from upstate New York, where spring comes late. Wherever you're living in the world, I'm assuming you might have frogs. I think wherever they are, they do come out in springtime, except for the, the tropical ones, which we'll leave out for the moment. You imagine a vernal pond thawing out at some point in time, and that begins in our area sometime in April, usually on the warmer nights, maybe a rainy night, then you hear the first croaking of our wood frogs and the spring peepers. Soon after that, you go to the ponds and they're full of eggs. You can watch the development of those eggs fairly quickly into tadpoles. And tadpoles as these funny looking remarkable little creatures that look somewhat like fish, but don't really look like fish either, but they're in water. They're not crawling around. They have no legs. They have what looks like to be a big head, which is actually the head and the abdomen, consisting actually mainly of their intestine, their very highly wound up intestine. And then this long, quite narrow tail that they wiggle and they move around in the water, often quite close to the surface. And with a little like beak at the front, they scratch off algae and suck them into their mouths and feed that way as tadpoles. When you are at the pond and watching these hundreds and maybe thousands of tadpoles swimming around, and then you come quietly or you sit quietly, then you might actually then see some frogs. They might reappear because they disappeared the moment you came. They jumped away or they went into the water. If you were not a careful observer like people were who discovered this, you'd have no idea that that croaking, hopping, four-legged creature had anything to do with the tadpole. I mean, they're totally different in their morphology, in their lifestyle, in their ecology. They're just really different creatures. And yet people were careful observers and realized, oh, they hang together. The tadpoles turn into frogs. I'd like to look at that process of the tadpole turning into the frog in some detail. And then this question, well, how can we think about that? What, whereby we're thinking the whole time while we're observing. Let me get this PowerPoint presentation up. So here you have an early stage frog. And the little one on the left is the same one as the big one on the right. You'll see why I have the two. They're the same one. One's just larger. And here you see they have eyes, little nostrils to the front. The mouth is down below that you don't really see. They don't have a jaw. You can't really open and close their mouth with the jaw. They suck in. And then on the side there, you can see where the gills are. Then along the back, the tail fin. As the tadpole develops, it changes its shape. In B, right above the B, a little bit to the right, this is then where the water leaves the organism, where the water has been taken in through the mouth and leaves through the spiracle, and the water goes in through the gills before it does that. The gills are inside of that opening. And so you have a gill-breathing, fish-like organism that also, which you can't see, 
but along the back, in line with the spinal cord, you have invaginated into the skin the so-called lateral line organ, which is what fish have as a main sensory organ through which they perceive movements in water. The eyes have no eyelids. At some point in time, and that's different for every frog species, and it's also very dependent on the conditions, how long this takes, if the water's colder, it's longer, if it's warmer, it's more quick. And depending on many other features with these creatures, you can't say it takes 10 days or three weeks, it just depends. You can see then what's been called prometamorphosis, that they begin to develop legs. Here's the abdomen, head. This is all on the inside, mainly digestive organs. And then from the rear, the legs begin to develop. In that process, they can be swimming around with little legs for quite a long time. Then comes what herpetologists in the case of amphibians call metamorphosis. So there's the pro-metamorphosis, just the beginning of a transformation. And then this radical transformation of this aquatic creature into a frog. As you can see, the tail gets smaller and smaller and at some point outwardly completely disappears. And this getting smaller and smaller is not an external sloughing off. It's an internal digestion process. So it digests internally, breaks down its own tail and reabsorbs the products of the breakdown into the bloodstream. And it utilizes its former tail, so to speak, in a completely transformed, from the point of view of substances, completely transformed, lost its form, and it becomes the basis for creating new organs. Creating new organs or remodeling existing organs. So that you can see how the back legs continue to grow, the front legs come out on the inside of the organism. So you not only have the disappearance of the tail, you have the disappearance of the gills. And before the gills disappear, you have the appearance, the development of the lungs. And so at one time, and this is usually within a week, this goes quickly this metamorphic process where the most radical changes that the organism goes through happen rapidly. At the same time that it's losing characteristics, it's gaining new characteristics, and other organs like the brain are being reconfigured during that time. You can see on the one hand, you have the complete change of shape, the animal actually gets smaller for a period of time, and then frogs usually grow a bit more, and then they're bigger than their larva. The shape of the animal is the short body with a quite a large head, and then these very, very long rear legs that are longer than the body, well, longer than the whole body, the short forelegs. Internally, the body has reconfigured. And I just like to focus on the head. If you look up the head, you can see on the one hand, it's become more flat and broader. 
And you can already see the developing mouth. It actually develops a jaw. The tadpole had no teeth. It develops teeth. The tadpole had no tongue. It develops a tongue. The little scraping beak, as it's called, which is a keratin substance, a protein substance, is reabsorbed into the body. It's no longer needed. About two-thirds of this huge small intestine gets broken down. In relation to the breaking down of the small intestine, the stomach develops. The gastric juice secreting organ, which we call the stomach, was not present in the larva. So that is developing. You have then that as the preparation for beginning to feed on a wholly different type of food, namely living animals, flies and mosquitoes and things like that. The inner transformation goes into even the most delicate and refined organs, like the eyeball. The eye changes its shape. The eyes get bigger. The eyes actually move from more the top of the head to the side of the head as the head's getting flatter. While that's happening, a different kind of pigment in the retina is being formed. The cornea, which had two layers in the larva, becomes one layer. The lens, which was spherical, becomes more what we would think of as lens-shaped. Can you imagine this? While you're living as a tadpole, now you're becoming a frog, and every aspect of your body is changing. During this time, it's clear that they're not feeding. There's a time when they can't feed, where the digestive system is being reconfigured. Also, for a time, they think they can't hear because the hearing is much more strongly developed in the frog than it is in the tadpole. When you think then that frogs also develop the capacity to bring forth sound, this amazing croaking choruses of springtime has to do with the development of the larynx and vocal sacs in different species. The hearing develops, the ability to bring forth sound develops, much better eyesight. This lateral line organ, which was along here, gets broken down. It's no longer needed, except for some frogs that remain aquatic, then they keep that organ. The skin changes in its pigmentation, gets thicker. Tadpoles breathe a lot through their skin. Frogs, the adult frog, less. All sorts of glands appear in the skin. And as I said already, the pigmentation, a wholly different pattern of coloration emerges. So you have all these incredible transformations. It's mind-boggling to think that a creature is alive and still sensing while its whole organism is transforming. It's really something. You can now see in the skeleton of the frog and a skeleton of a salamander, which is a closely related animal, also an amphibian that goes through a larval stage, but the transformation is not nearly as radical. These are interesting little details for me. On the one hand, you have the form of a bony skeleton, which was not there before, 
It's mainly all cartilage in the tadpole, in the larva. And in there are details like this Eurostyle, which is actually the remnant of the tail. And the whole tail gets broken down except for this little tiny bit that gets incorporated as a stiff staff, so to speak, into the pelvis, which functionally is very important for stabilizing the pelvis while the frog is hopping. So what was the tail as an organ of movement outwardly mainly gets broken down, but some of it gets incorporated into the inside of this very compact body of the leaping frog. I'm not going to go into this in too much detail. I do a little bit more in the little book, but I just want to show you this in the amphibians. And you can see how the frogs within the amphibian group represent an extreme in this compact leaping body form, which is untypical altogether amongst vertebrates. If you think, where are leaping mammals? You can think of the kangaroo. There aren't a lot of leaping mammals or leaping reptiles. There are some. But the frog has this really unique configuration, and it arose out of this aquatic tadpole. So that's just kind of a sketch of the biology. One can just follow that. You read, I mean, I've read lots of literature on all these transformations that are going on. And then you say, okay, tadpole turns into frog. And you can get lost in the details, or you can just kind of say, okay, this is what happens. But what happened for me at a particular time in going through this again, observing them, bringing them into an aquarium and watching them outwardly transform, not all the inner transformations that I knew from the literature, and realizing, okay, when we say that the adult frog, develops out of the tadpole. We say that kind of thing. We also say that the fetus develops out of the embryo and the newborn child develops out of the fetus, that the embryo develops out of the fertilized egg, out of the zygote. This is the kind of language we use for developmental processes, this thinking out of. And in taking seriously the processes that are going on in frog metamorphosis, but you could also take insect metamorphosis, or as I said, actually any developmental process, then there is no such thing as a developmental process unless something new comes to appearance. Otherwise, we don't speak of development. We just speak of growth which is already something new. Just to make it more simple, you can say getting bigger, something getting bigger. But that's we usually don't call development. If we're talking about development, we're saying, well, yes, something new's coming about. It wasn't there before. And yet we say out of, as if the tadpole and the frog really wanted to give us a lesson, they say, well, look at, look at me, I'm a tadpole. Everything in me is a tadpole has to disappear so that a frog can come into being. I just mean the adult frog. In order for this stage of life to appear called the adult frog, 
there had to be a tadpole, but the tadpole had to be completely reconfigured, had to give itself up, had to disappear. And in the disappearing, the frog appears. The frog becomes flesh. And the frog was not there. You could never, ever, from looking at a tadpole, from investigating a tadpole, have any idea that something frog-like would appear. Just like from an early embryo, you could never, ever know what the adult form will be like. You think you can once you get to know things, but that's where you just are using your knowledge of what has come into being and saying, of course, yeah, well, this becomes that, becomes that, becomes that, becomes that. You can trace the whole process. There's a continuity in the transformational process. But at every moment, in as much as it's truly development, something new is coming into being, coming to appearance. And it was not there. The new coming into being is what I really want to take seriously. You have a continuity of life processes from tadpole to frog, from frog to eggs and fertilized egg, from fertilized egg to tadpole. You have a life cycle. And we look at that continuity of, of organic development. When you go actually to the new coming in to being, coming to appearance, then what you realize is, is that, of course, the what was there previously forms the basis for that, but it's not there. And that actually, an organism is a living activity, and when in, in development, its activities are constantly changing, and in that changing, some new characteristics are showing themselves which cannot be derived in any way, shape, or form from what came before. This, for me, is important. And why? Because we usually think about development, and I, when I say we, I'm not knowing if I'm including you as part of the we or not, but someone who has a biological background, you basically get hammered into you to find for any process that happens now, how it was caused by something at a previous time. This causes that, causes that, causes that. When you read about the metamorphosis of tadpole into frog, that's what you focus on. That's what the literature mainly focuses on is, oh, what are the factors that allow that process to happen? So if there's no thyroid hormone, doesn't happen. If you don't have certain genes, doesn't happen. You can look at all the factors in the past and that come into play at any given moment that allow a process to happen, but that does not actually explain the new thing coming into being. It doesn't explain that. It just gives you an impression of all the different factors that are involved in allowing something new to come to expression. I thought here I might read this little spot in the book 
from Scott Gilbert, who is a developmental biologist studying biological development for a long time, embryology and development, because he speaks to this very question. And he says, the meaning of a particular molecule depends upon the cell receiving it. Consider, for instance, the wisdom of the frog. I was, of course, very happy that he spoke about the wisdom of the frog. Don't regress your tail until you have already constructed your legs. How does the frog tadpole do it? One would think that the tadpole would use an early signaling molecule to cause the limb rudiments to proliferate and a later signal to tell the tail to regress. However, what happens is far more interesting. The same signal, the thyroid hormone, T4, thyroxin, is secreted by the thyroid gland. In some cells, so it's the same signal, in some cells, the thyroid signal is interpreted to say, differentiate. In other cells, thyroxin signal says, die. In others, the same molecule tells the cells, proliferate. And in the some tissues, the hormone doesn't seem to do a thing. What he's pointing out is, what one usually looks as a cause is actually, you could say, it's the process in the organism itself. It's not quite correct, probably, to say it this way, of self-communication. It's an interplay between the different organs and this thyroxin, for this organ begins to do this, this organ begins to do that. And that's not determined by thyroxin. It's elicited that the process happens, but the determination is something that comes from the whole organism in its developmental process. Because this is the fascinating thing, and I think I just need to speak to this because it's so prevalent today that one says, well, the genes are making it happen. You probably know that one thinks, and it's pretty true, that the genes in the tadpole, the basic structure of the DNA molecule in the cells, is basically the same in the tadpole as it is in the adult. That stays all the same, 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 same. It doesn't actually stay the same. It's remade the same, remade the same, remade the same, remade the same, because DNA is not static. It's continually being remade. But there's a sameness in that over time that's being recreated all the time. The sameness of the DNA is not creating the difference between tadpole and frog. It's the whole organism in relation to DNA and all its proteins and everything else that is allowing a process to happen where new features come into being. So that the organism is creative activity, so I put it in there. I use this expression as an interesting translation from Aristotle, being at work, which he called energia, um, this being at work. It is a being at work. It is something in the doing, and in the doing, it's the unfolding of the life, but not unfolding of what's already there, but you could say an infolding of what's coming into being that you can only know once it's come into being. You can't know about it beforehand. What's really most important is for me is to overcome, and I think I finally overcome it to a degree, 
somehow you think of development as just an automatic process. It just happens. Biology just happens. And then we speak of mechanisms and causes, and so it just happens. And that's what I think is completely false. I think it's just completely false that it's activity all the way down. There is no script that's just being read. It's not all that simple. In parentheses, I, if you're interested in this, to, to be really convinced that the way most of us picture what DNA does is wrong, I'd encourage you to read an article by my colleague, Steve Talbot, which we just posted on our website on the Nature Institute's website, which is very challenging, but you get a feel for, my God, this is what's actually going on when DNA is being transcribed. It's really activity all the way down into the genes, and you can only understand things out of the larger contexts, never from the bottom up. It just doesn't work in biology. I'm not going to speak about other areas. Moving from an idea that we're dealing with discrete things to the idea that we're really dealing with active processes and agency, activity, to lack of a better word, calling beings, but I don't want to reify that in the sense of some weird thing. What I mean is just the, a coherent, self-organizing activity where new things are being brought into being. This is really important, I think, if one wants to understand evolution. It's the same kind of plasticity, the same kind of reactivity, all the way down into every molecular process. There, you never come up against this, what we all have in our heads, as being the script of life. DNA is a fascinating molecule, and it's something very special. There's no question about that. For me, it's a huge riddle still, what it is. But you cannot understand it without seeing its embeddedness in the whole, which has different layers. And every layer is embedded in another layer. And unless you start weaving those together or seeing how they're weave woven together, you've just got an abstraction and nothing to do with reality. And the thing is, is that the, why that view is also so enticing is, is you can manipulate. You can do things, right? You can change something. You change some DNAs, things are going to change. You put in a hormone at a different time, things are going to change. So you have the element of control, the element of a certain amount of power and manipulation power that we often confuse with understanding. If you've got a power to do something, then you feel empowered to keep doing it and to refine that power and make it a little bit better here, a little bit better there, like one's done in genetic engineering and things. But that's different from actually understanding all what it means to be an organism, what it means to be alive, what's entailed in the living, which is what we need to really get a feel for, especially when we're going to talk about evolution. There are many, many, many ways to go at evolution. I'm just going to take one trajectory and we'll see how it goes. I'll start with what's in the book, in the monograph on the frog, taking one example from paleontology. Of course, paleontology was really key in all of thinking about evolution. You could have the idea of evolution and you could come to Darwin's theory of evolution without seeing any fossils. You could. But the fossil record is something that just is an incredible area of phenomena has contributed heavily to evolutionary 
whether I could say to evolutionary theory, maybe not so much as to the phenomena that evolutionary theory needs to account for. Let's put it that way. Let's just take this example of frog evolution to begin with. You have the first known frog fossils in the lower early Jurassic period, and then the group to which they belong, we call the amphibians, then were around at a much earlier period already in the Devonian and existed up through the latter part of the Paleozoic era and then into the Mesozoic, and then frogs. The fossil record of frogs is not the most glamorous, let's put it that way, I guess. It's not the one that shows the most, but we'll just take it. This picture shows the modern frog, and then in comparison, early frogs. They have the short skeleton, they have the long back legs, they have the broad, wide head, the details of the bones, the skull, are very similar to the modern frogs. Frogs have been around for a long time. And I just put it frogging, 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 frogging. Generation after generation, the development of frogs has been evident. Even every once in a while, they find fossils of tadpoles, which is amazing. So the tadpoles metamorphosis has evidently also been around for a long time. So we have this stability of a group of animals, this repeating of the same theme again and again and again in every generation. But the fossil record shows us something else. You go back further in time and you find lots of what one calls amphibians, mainly not because one knows exactly where they lay their eggs or anything like that or knows anything about their skin, but purely from the skeleton, especially certain characteristics in the skull and in the organization of the skull bones tell you, aha, those are similar. There's a homology there that's quite close, despite the great variety of body forms that you can see here and sizes. If you just look at the scale bar there, you have these smaller creatures and then this creature, which was very sizable. So you have a variety of forms from almost snake-like to four-legged. You can see now you're down in these older Paleozoic forms and you have incredible variety and nothing frog-like, nothing. Nothing hopping like a certain similarity to more like salamander type forms, but then these really odd different kinds of forms. So a great amount of diversity. And of course, you find this again and again in so many groups. A certain group will begin to develop and then you have amazing diversity within that group. I mean, just think of the dinosaurs. Think of all the different kind of mammals that arose, began to arise in the Mesozoic era, etc. So great diversity of form. So what about frogs? In between this time, every once in a while, one does find a fossil. And here, if you're a specialist in amphibian and especially frog fossil history, 
this Tridobatrachus is very well known as being a form that, especially in the skull, has many characteristics of what we would say modern frogs. What does that mean? Some aspects of, of what later we see as frog begin to make themselves known in the fossil record and in the head in this particular instance, mainly in the head, because you can see the spine is still really long. There's still a gap fossil record, but you can see some aspect of frogness. Again, you put them next to each other and you go, who? You really have to know what you're talking about, looking at, and be very attentive to details to say that this has something to do with that. But that is the case with all of fossil history. You take an early form, what they call an early form of a particular group, and you take a later form of the group, and you can see almost no no connection between the two. And then if you're lucky, like in the case of the horse evolution, then you can start filling in the gaps with an amazing amount of fossils that you find in the Western United States. There are a few other fossils where in a different way, but again, mainly in the head and aspects of the teeth that they also found, you can say, aha, this is nascent frog or evolution frogging nascently. The spine is still long. They don't really have hardly anything from the rear legs, but it doesn't seem like the pelvis was at all towards the frog. And even in this form, which looks much more like a salamander type, there are characteristics in the teeth and in the skull that speak for frogness. So in this particular evolutionary process, it seems that head comes first, and if you want to put it that way, and the limb and axial skeleton or the postcranial axial skeleton follows. So you've got here the missing link question. Will one find anything in between? Who knows? Those are questions you cannot theoretically answer. You cannot say, you can just say, well, maybe somebody will find something, maybe someone will not. But what I find interesting is simply this fact, which one knows from many different groups of animals, that you have the modern forms, which go back to a certain time period. And then you have earlier forms that don't resemble them at all. And sometimes you have forms that are in between, intermediate forms, but sometimes you don't. But even when you have intermediate forms, they're not just one after another after another showing a nice linear sequence. You usually have their tendencies showing themselves in different animals, in different groups, so that one might have more of the limb tendency incarnating while the other has more in the trunk and the other has it in the head. And so this is what's often called mosaic evolution. That picture isn't great because it's like you're putting pieces together. But the way I look at it is, is that you have now a developmental process on Earth that we can get a little bit of a sense of through the fossil record, and that what later becomes frog, just like tadpole 
metamorphosing into frog today, you have in the fossil record a metamorphic process of which we only see traces. What shows itself in the um, fossil record is, is that that is not simply a linear process. Linear is not right the right word because it's not linear from tadpole to frog either. What I mean is, is that you can't just say this and then that comes and then that comes and then that comes and then that comes and then you've got the modern frog. What you can say is you've got these forms, those forms, those forms, and at some point in time, the modern frog appears on the basis of what came before, but you could never know that a creature like this or like that would develop into a hopping frog. No way. Just like you can't know the tadpole is going to develop into a frog. So it is the same kind of gesture that we saw in the individual development when you just say there's always something new coming into being, otherwise we wouldn't speak about evolution. And that newness comes into appearance on the basis of that which was there before, but the steps in the process that we can see or the tracks that we can see are only just that. They're the tracks. They're not the thing itself. And the actual developmental process is something you can't see with your physical eyes, right? You cannot see that. We can only think that. And to think it halfway correctly, we have to say there's new qualities incarnating onto the earth over time in different ways in different groups. For me, it's just important that the way one often talks about these things, people look for the ancestor as though that will answer the question of where something came from or the missing link. Yeah, let's find the missing link between apes and humans, or let's find the missing link between some kind of a interesting, who knows, hippopotamus-like creature and whales or whatever, as if that told you where it came from. But it doesn't tell you that. What it tells you is in what lineage is it part of? Just like that you can know the frog is part of the lineage that goes back to tadpole. You can know that modern frogs somehow are in the lineage that also Triadobatrachus is in and then going back further, perhaps to some other amphibians, earlier ones. But we will not answer the question of the origins of something by just looking to the past. The secrets of evolution reveal themselves in the whole process and not by just finding a particular fossil. It's the whole process where the meaning of it, if we can find any meaning in it, arises, and not by saying, aha, once we've got that fossil, then we've got the solution to the problem, or we know where things come from. It seems to me that all the evidence speaks for a continuity of the stream of life throughout biological evolution. And the stream is not one stream, but all these different tributaries or whatever image you want to use, that there's these unbroken connection of generation to generation to generation to generation, going far back in time. And somehow in that stream, new things came about. 
new development came about. And the thing is, is that we don't observe that, you could say, in the same way today. And yet, on the other hand, we do because we see how tadpoles turn into frogs. So we're seeing radical changes today, too. But the difference is, is that that's a generational thing that repeats itself, repeats itself, repeats itself. So that you don't have the sense, oh, there's something now in the next generation, the frog gets, let's say, really long forelegs and then becomes a different kind of four-legged creature rather than a hopping creature. All the evolutionary processes that we observe today, that people speak about today, are tiny, tiny little changes, tiny little tweaks in existing forms, whether it's the coloration of the plumage in a bird or the length of a beak in a bird, the thickness of the beak, coloration and and, and little changes in morphology, in the digits of lizards and things like that. All these changes are really small, whereas having no frogs on Earth and, and having frogs on Earth is a big deal. The evolutionary process has brought about much larger changes, and that remains the huge riddle of how that could happen. Well, I try not to speculate. For me, I say, it evidently happened, but I don't know how it happened. I'm okay with that, actually. I say, well, maybe I'll still find a way to get more understanding of that. But what I'm not going to do is to then try to come up with some mechanism or something of how that could happen when I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be too theoretical about it. And I don't mind leaving that as a riddle because it's at least clear for me. And that was freeing. Oh, yeah. There are new qualities working their way into the stream of life ongoing in different groups, in different ways, creating an immense diversity of life on Earth over time. For me, then, it's not so much a question of finding out, was it caused in any kind of a bottom-up way, but just trying to get more and more a sense of the picture, of the quality of things that are happening. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes in our podcast series or just learn more about our work, you can find us at natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.